0: Welcome back to After Action, I'm Chad Hammer. This is part two of Operation Cinderella Story, where we hear from Special Agent Chris Swenson about how he brought down a ring of Korean brothels in New York City. Now, back to the interview.
1: You know, as they say, uh, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. This is probably the best story I'll ever have in my law enforcement career. What ended up happening was We kind of fanned out among the island of Manhattan and set up a physical surveillance on these brothels. By circumstance, I just happened to get a brothel that was in the vicinity of Fifth Avenue in the 30s in Midtown Manhattan. For those of you not familiar with Manhattan, there's basically more people in that area on a weekday than you could even conceptualize. So before I set up on the basically the establishment to try to see her, being at that point a salty uh, law enforcement veteran, I know one of the priorities, unfortunately, is to make sure you use the bathroom before you do it and make sure you're efficiently hydrated and all that, because it might be hours you're in the car. So I see a Panera Bread on Fifth Avenue. Busy, busy, busy spot. I go in. I ask the worker where the bathrooms are. They say, oh, they're downstairs. I said, oh, fantastic. So I go downstairs. I'm walking towards the restroom. And who do I believe that I see sitting, drinking a coffee just to my left? but Hoy Ham, the bag lady. Impossible. I end up using the restroom, kind of getting my head around whether I'm just hoping it's her or whether it's just some other random woman. I walk out, I glance at her briefly, and I say, oh, it's definitely her. But I have to check myself because it's too crazy to be true. So I call my partner in crime, Justin. I say, Justin, you're gonna think I'm insane, but Hoy Ham is having coffee in the Panera Bread that I just left. And I'm like, it's probably not her though. I'm trying to manage expectations because maybe I am going a little crazy at this point. So Justin goes in, gets eyes on her, leaves, calls me. He's like, it's absolutely her. Wow. It's not to be believed. I mean, If you wrote it in a book, no one would believe it. So what, he, what we did was we set up on the Panera Bread and ended up following her and watching, just as described, the outside exchange of envelopes and cash over the next hour and a half, two hours at like six different other locations.
0: Wow. Busy.
1: Busy. And as it ends up, we went back through her bank records, which we had, and I looked for charges to see if that was a normal thing for her to go to Panera during this trip. Sure enough, every Wednesday, without exception, at about 12 o'clock even, she would make like a $3.14 purchase of coffee at Panera and commence her traversing the island and picking up money. So we ended up watching her like six or seven more times and taking photos. And it it ended up just being just an unbelievable stroke of luck. What did
0: she end up doing with the money? How did they get the money to where it needed to go?
1: So she ends up this unassuming, five-foot-tall, 70-year-old Korean woman who is the fastest walker, by the way, you'll ever, ever meet in your life. I'm in pretty good shape. I run. Justin's in pretty good shape. We were getting gas keeping keep it up with her. She motors, let me tell you. Well, what ended up happening is we found out that she ended up taking New Jersey transit into Manhattan, and she would then end up at Penn Station with this voluminous bag of money. We actually set up surveillance and then ended up obtaining CCTV surveillance from the Dwayne Reed in Penn Station. And we watched her pull out this impossibly large wad of money and just rip through it. And she'd buy thousands of dollars of prepaid Visa gift cards. And what we ended up discerning was that she would take photos of these cards she'd scratch off the pin on the back and she would simply send them via KakaoTalk, talk which is an encrypted korean version of whatsapp to okay. her son in korea and it was really that simple it was brilliantly simple in fact that's what she did and that's how they got the money back in addition to uh, some other methods like body carrying money smuggling when they had trusted individuals go over there but it was pretty simple
0: wow so this ties the money back to again the guy in korea This family is definitely a target. Who else are your targets at this point?
1: So we ended up developing very, very good intel and information on the owners of these establishments. The owners, in many cases, ended up being women who graduated out of being a a working girl and ended up either purchasing or starting and then running these establishments, predominantly Korean women in their 40s, sometimes early 50s. And they ended up being responsible for recruitment of girls in South Korea, logistical support for these girls. And of course, they were making a boatload of money given the volume each of these uh, establishments was producing money-wise.
0: But you saw connections between these owners, right? You saw them socialize or they knew each other?
1: We did. We spent a lot of time in Queens developing other sources. We ended up having probably over 20 sources in this case, which was critical. And what we found was a couple of our sources told us there was a a must-go-to event occurring on a Friday night in Queens in the Flushing area at a Korean social hall. It was the wedding of one of these owners. So we knew, just like you see the movies like The Godfather, and we knew it was going to be the uh, social event of some time. And it sure was. Justin and I set up surveillance and ended up getting plate numbers, photos of these owners consorting with each other, really just good intel. And then we obviously parlayed those plate numbers into being able to track where they live, where they travel, who they meet with, all of that. So it was pretty amazing.
0: At what point did you bring in the South Korean authorities? Is this around this time in the case or later?
1: It was around this time. We had been in close coordination with Natasha Pachel, who was the ARSOI. The DS agent in charge of investigations at Embassy Seoul and the FSNI, the the embedded foreign national, uh, Chase Lee. And at one point, it became very clear to us we needed to travel to Seoul and really sit down and fully brief the case with our Seoul Metropolitan Police Detective counterparts. So uh, that's what we did. We uh, got authorization from DS to travel to Seoul and we held multi day meetings with the Korean authorities. Our goal of those meetings was to really just bring them into the fold. One thing you may be aware, DS is very good at collaborating and asking nicely and building relationships instead of being dictatorial about it. That's what we did. And the professionalism with which we were met by the Seoul authorities was unmatched. They volunteered full assistance in any way possible and open information sharing to the extent that they were actually using our facts to execute search warrants in Korea obtaining wow. Cacao talk information and other information that we wouldn't be able to get without a mutual legal assistance treaty or an MLAP. And they were sharing it with us just as freely as we were sharing information with them. And it was incredible, absolutely incredible.
0: So at this point, you're building a pretty big case what is your next move? What is the big move you have planned?
1: We ended up realizing while we could keep going and pulling on threads and getting more targets, we realized at this juncture, we actually had to take some enforcement action. We did have the assistance and some help from IRS criminal investigations and Homeland Security, but it's important to note that this was a DS-led case out of the New York field office. And as such, the New York field office management, my great boss, Liz McAleer, who's now retired, said, figure it out, Chris. We'll put it together. So literally I'm sitting in a room with Justin and Jack and we're like, okay, well, how are we gonna put this together? We don't have names or agency, manpower, strengths or anything like that. So we just started just sketching out the framework of what this action would look like. And what this action ended up looking like was 13 search warrants executed on April 13th, 2016 in 10 in Manhattan, one in New Jersey, one in Queens, one in Pennsylvania, and then an additional warrant being executed simultaneously in coordination with the Korean authorities on Ryan Kim, our, one of our main targets in Korea.
0: And this all had so, to be done exactly the same time, right?
1: That's right. It was super important to us to be able to, you know, hit these places, coordinate all of the information sharing and not have people flee when they realize what's happening. So we ended up using about 260 agents. The entirety wow. of NIFO management, the supervisors were serving as team leaders. We actually TDI'd temporary duty agents in from all over the country from ds to help us and we ended up putting together it was between 230 and 260 agents not counting the korean authorities to execute this thing and it was daunting but it was uh it got done
0: so on this day in April, you hit all these locations, but this time you were more overt, you were you were taking devices, you were taking names.
1: Yeah, we seized bankers' boxes of documents, untold amounts of electronic devices, computers, tablets, anything that would help us more fully understand who might have criminal liability in this. It's important to note, you know, we made arrests that day, but we didn't arrest any of the girls. We talked to them, we offered victim services to them. And we didn't arrest the kind of the managers who were responsible for the day-to-day activities, phone answering, so on and so forth. We really targeted information that we knew would be helpful to have us get to the owners.
0: I should clarify, when you say girls, you mean these were women, right? There was no child sex angle in this case, right?
1: That's right, yeah. They were, in many cases, Korean girls in their early to mid-20s, they were women and there was no indicia of any trafficking of minors, which was which is a good thing.
0: Yeah, so you made a few arrests that day, but you had more to come, is that right?
1: That's right. We ended up conferencing with our AUSAs, the prosecutors at Southern District of New York, with all of the information that we got from the raids. Now, there was nothing quick about this. All of these devices had to be imaged, triaged, bankers' boxes had to be gone through, and it was very tedious work. Once we got to the point where we ended up following the money and finding relevant communications, translating them, etc. We ended up developing a second tier of targets, not a second tier that they're lower tier, but the next wave, so to speak.
0: Right. So what did you find among that group?
1: Well, we found what we expected to find, which is that there were kind of women that graduated out of the game, running some of these spots we were able to attribute ownership to. But really, one of the most interesting things we found that we certainly didn't expect was the presence of a multimillionaire Harvard-educated medical doctor living in Massachusetts that was actually financing one of these brothels.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that doctor. Tell me more about him.
1: So we found in the correspondence with a specific brothel located in Manhattan that he was providing pretty advanced financial advice to this owner based on analysis of information to include customer flow by hour. And we said, wow, who is this guy? this guy is like really providing like top level financial guidance. And we ended up having to scratch and claw a little bit to find out who he was, but we ended up identifying him. And as I stated, he was a medical doctor by trade. He did an internship at a Mass General Hospital in Boston, also had a master's in public policy from Harvard. And he was a very successful multimillionaire that created a data analytics business. And that's when the light came on. We said, oh, okay, well, he's not using his powers for good here. He's using his powers for bad. And why I say that is he actually provided seed money as it ends up for not only the New York brothel that you know was the subject of our investigation, one of the subjects, he provided startup and seed money for brothels in Los Angeles, Chicago, Rhode Island and Massachusetts in that he would lend money at a like, kind of a usurious interest rate, 18 to 20% to some of these women in these places he was frequenting. And then he was using that as leverage over them to extort sex from them for free and also have them reach out to other individuals that he could then prey on as well, financially and otherwise sexually. This doctor who we ended up arresting and searching his 8,000 square foot mansion in Massachusetts was one of several financiers we found. We found that there was a another level of financiers present in Queens that were taking photos of passport books from potential borrowers and then in turn charging abusurious rates, although without the sexual coercion, but really kind of doing aggressive loan shark type activity. So we decided unequivocally, we said we have to target them because it's right. it's the next wrong, man. We would have never got to them but for conducting numerous, numerous interviews of the owners we arrested and really developing the next tier of targets, which ended up being uh, these financiers and providers of seed money.
0: So you secured a number of convictions. There was obviously this whole business got shut down. You were able to recoup some of the costs for the government and some of the illegal proceeds?
1: We seized, ended up seizing over $1 million cash in this case, multiple types of precious metal, gold Mm. bullion and such. In fact, in Hoy Ham's apartment, again, Life is Stranger Than Fiction, we actually found a gold bullion stashed in her hamper, which we joked was physically money laundering. But we ended up getting about a million dollars in seized assets from all these individuals, 24 in total, I believe, and uh, getting some substantial fines and, and prison time.
0: Fantastic. New York nowadays is still dealing with this kind of problem?
1: since it's the oldest profession, in some ways, you'll never stamp it out. But what we did find out through our continuous interviews and, and vetting, we significantly changed the landscape in New York and that, as related to us by our Korean authorities, cooperators, etc., New York became viewed as a very inhospitable city for the Korean sex trade. We definitely did not extinguish the oldest profession, but what we did do was shut it down to the degree that it forever changed the face in New York. And we know some of the business went elsewhere, but we can only work and do what you can do. And I I think I'm very proud and our team should be very proud of that because we ended up contacting lots of women and preventing other women from even coming over and perhaps ensuring that they don't get entrapped in this life and the golden handcuffs. One of the communications we found on one of the women's phones basically said it's better to be a cook in a kitchen or be dead then engage in this day in and day out. And really, that's wow. what we found here. It was a classic case of maybe not classic coercion, but they didn't have another choice in, in many respects.
0: What else have you did you learn from this whole experience that led you to, to succeed in other cases?
1: Well, I think what we learned collectively was the value of effective law enforcement cooperation. And it reinforced my view going forward that the single biggest thing you can do when you have what I would term a criminal conspiracy or a network is you have to look downfield and say how do we get there, where we want to be to take the next step. And almost always cases aren't made behind the desk. Cases are made by flipping human sources and really looking downfield to determine where you want to go and then developing a plan to get there. that That would be my takeaway.
0: Two follow-up questions I got to ask. The name of the operation, how did that come about, and what does that represent?
1: Sure. Operation Cinderella Story. It's an interesting name. It actually has meaning to us because when we were first digging into this case, we happened to just come upon by by chance kind of a folk tale called Cinderella Story that involved a Korean girl who basically endeavored to make her life better and took a multitude of steps in order to do so and, and ended up trying to be princess and living her best life and we felt that that resonated with us because i think in some ways that's a lot of what these girls ultimately were seeking to do they were making perhaps choices that weren't good for the long term and they didn't realize that some of these choices would lock them into this life but really we took the kind of sympathetic view that in some ways they were no different than this little girl that was trying to, to have a better life They just did it in some ways that maybe uh, wasn't the best choice. And we felt that that story was an appropriate namesake for this case.
0: Yeah. It emphasized your kind of sympathy for the, the women who are being kind of trapped in this lifestyle.
1: Absolutely. I think at every step in the road, we really took a lot of care and presented these women with a face that they could believe and a face that they could trust and and wasn't judgmental. And really, that was also key to gaining cooperation. We, We conducted over 50 to 60 interviews with these girls, and we ended up learning a lot about the industry and about their personal stories as well. Some of them were tragic.
0: Because even throughout the completion of the case, At no point were any of these women deported or targeted or arrested themselves, aside from the owners, once they kind of graduated that level, is that right?
1: That's exactly right. We took a victim-centered approach with the girls uh, who were kind of entrapped, I would say, in this life, offered them services, offered them our counsel as to how other women have ended up in suicidal situations and Mm -hmm. just a a bad way. And it was with a delicate touch that we dealt with them. We didn't charge any of them, no, nor did we want to.
0: There was a sort of to the chapter of the doctor. Is that right? Yes. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So this is kind of a unique experience in in my career. The doctor was sentenced in SDNY to a year and a day in prison and post-release supervision and a fine, so on and so forth. He, He was basically given a break, according to the sentencing judge, because his wife was terminally ill at the time. He was engaged in all of this nasty activity. But she really made a heartfelt and compelling video to the court. The court took her illness and and situation into consideration when sentencing and gave him much less than I feel that he deserved. However, the arc of justice is long, but it is ever present. And he ended up appealing to the second district, the Court of Appeals, because the court made an error in sentencing him. They sentenced him to one year extra of supervision than was authorized by statute. So this goes before the Court of Appeals, the tribunal, to say, okay, well, this guy's done his prison time, he's challenging now his post-release supervision, and he makes an argument through his attorney to this Court of Appeals. Well, the Court of Appeals reads the briefs and all that before they even engage in oral arguments. The Court of Appeals did not suffer very kindly this doctor's situation. They said, well, we've read your briefs and all of that, but let's really talk about this hellacious conduct where you kept records of how you sexually abused and extorted these women. So at that point, the attorney who was arguing this doctor's case saw some red flags and said, you know what? I think we're going to withdraw the appeal. Sorry. Thank you. And the tribunal said, no, you're not. We will not let you withdraw. We're going to remand this case back to the court for resentencing as if the original sentencing never happened. And that's wow. what they did. So as it ends up, he gets a new resentencing date after already having served a year in prison. The district court judge was irate that he basically looked to give horse in the mouth and appealed this. And in the interim, while the doctor was in prison, his wife had power of attorney. Once his conduct became clear what he actually was doing and how bad it was, she cleaned him out and took everything. So he no longer had this sympathetic figure in his corner. The judge resentenced him to three additional years in prison, not counting the one year he already did. And it was a classic, what I call an Aesop's fable, you know, very cautionary tale as far as hubris and perhaps getting out over your skis a little bit. That was, well, I know well-deserved, but also kind of an interesting coda, as as you well said. Well,
0: Chris, that is a huge case and a great story. I really, really appreciate your time. I hope we get it back again sometime.
1: Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And thanks to all of our partners in this case. Uh, We couldn't have done it without them.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you.